As we come now before the very word of God, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 11? If you're reading in a pew Bible, the page number's there in your bulletin, which is nice and handy. If you're finding it in your own Bible, well, good luck. You know, Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There you go. If you can find Psalms, just keep turning a little to the right till you bump into it. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that these are your words and that these are good things for us. We also know that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Lord, in this time, would you be pleased to reveal these things to us, that you would cause us to hear you, to trust you, and to come to believe in you. Guide us now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take this morning these first six verses of this chapter. So this is Ecclesiastes in chapter 11. We'll begin here in verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it again after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God, who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good." This is the word of God. Now, what on earth brought us to this text this morning? If you've been with us here over the last several months, you know that last week we finished walking our way through the book of James. And the next time we're together, Lord willing, uh, we'll begin our walk through one of the Old Testament prophets. So we're not starting a series here in the book of Ecclesiastes, but I wanted to seize this moment here in the space between books as we're traveling from one to another to just take a, take a brief little, little pit stop here so that we can catch a glimpse of Ecclesiastes for a couple of reasons. The first reason why we're, we're here just for a moment is because I'm not likely to be able to preach all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's, it's a book that's not easily divisible into nice, tidy little sections. It's meant to be taken as one whole. 
And if we slice Ecclesiastes up into two small bites, we, we end up missing the author's point and totally misunderstand him. Uh, so this, the whole book is more suitable to study than it is to a sermon series. So that's why we're not taking the whole book. But Ecclesiastes is a part of a genre that we often call wisdom literature. And since we've spent all this time in these past months in the book of James, which is called the wisdom literature of the New Testament, I thought it would benefit us to look at some of the ways of wisdom literature in general. So we're here in the Old Testament in this snippet of wisdom literature to to listen here and to see what God would have for us. Now, Let's talk just briefly about what wisdom literature is. It's, it's not, just like any genre of the Bible, any type of writing, wisdom literature is not, you know, a, a nice, easily, tidy, clearly defined category. But generally, people, when they're talking about wisdom literature, are talking about at least three main books, which are Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Sometimes others are bundled in there, but at least Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And those three books approach wisdom from three very different roads. So Job, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the book of Job. Job is a narrative account focusing on one man, the righteous man Job, who at the very beginning of the account loses almost everything he has. And Job then, throughout the rest, is wrestling with his response to this, wrestling with his friends and even with with God throughout it. And yet, at the end, he comes to honor and trust God. So that's Job. Proverbs, many of you, I'm sure, are also familiar with that. And Proverbs is a bundle of things, but mainly these snippets of life truths. There's these little, you know, bite-sized but deep couplets Uh, that that talk about all sorts of various subjects, things that that all of us encounter, money and relationships and work and all, all those things. Now, Ecclesiastes, however, is to most people a little less familiar than Job and Proverbs. If you've ever read Ecclesiastes, you know that it's not like most of the rest of wisdom literature. It's not even like most of the rest of the Bible. Ecclesiastes is written by, uh, the author describes himself as the son of David, who we assume to be Solomon, and, and he calls himself the preacher in the, various, in, the first, in the first verse. The preacher, or maybe teacher, some translate it. And these are how the very first verses open. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What good is all of this, he's asking. And from there, the preacher then begins to unpack and tries to discern the meaning of life. Or whether all of this is just chasing after wind. So if we were to think of these three major wisdom literature books, we could think of them as three different cups. So Job is an an empty cup. That is a cup that's poured out, where life feels, at least, abandoned. Proverbs is a full cup, a cup that's even brimming over what what it looks like to have abundant 
life, full life, a wise life. Ecclesiastes is neither empty nor full. Ecclesiastes is like a a cracked cup. That is, there's liquid in there, but it's leaking. Something is broken here. That's not to say that the author is flawed, that the writing is wrong in the words there. It's the word of God, after all. The author is carried along by the Holy Spirit. But the author in Ecclesiastes is looking at the cracks of life. He even climbs inside of the cup, even, to examine these cracks from the inside. So he begins to take to task all these various components of life, you know, pleasures and labor and power and wealth and youth and relationships, and he's seeing this, like, spider web of flaws in all of it, that in a sense, he says, all is vanity or emptiness. Things come, things go, he says. We're born, then we die. The sun rises and sets, and it returns to the place it goes, and round and round we go on this carousel of life. Have you ever felt that? Sometimes the reality of this settles in, and it can be unsettling. It's a weighty thought to think about these things, and yet the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't avoid it. He sets his mind flat on it. All these things, he says, is is part of life under the sun. This idea of life under the sun, this phrase of under the sun is this cadence, this drumbeat throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And as he, he unfolds this life under the sun, I've heard it said that it's a fitting summary of Ecclesiastes, that that this is a good way to describe the whole book. Life does not hold its own key. I think that's a good and fitting summary. Life does not hold its own key. That is, life cannot unlock its own meaning cannot unlock its own secrets and purpose. Life is not able to breathe life into itself. And that's not a hopeless view. You know, it's not trying to be cynical. It's not like someone that says, you know, life hurts and then you die so that you can make room for other people who will have a life that hurts. That's not the idea. It's just saying that a cracked cup cannot mend itself. It needs some intervention from the outside. There's a call for something bigger, something that's not under the sun, but but beyond the sun, that will step into the space under the sun. Something that will be able to hold everything together, be able to reveal purpose and actually fill up the cup. So by the end, the author, after unfolding all of these things, looking at all the cracks of the cup, at the end, he's calling the creation to reconnect with God, our maker, the maker of the cup. So the final conclusion of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he says, is just, if you look at the very last verses, it's to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, I could keep going, but I won't. I know you have 
a rest of the day to get to, so I'll, I'll spare you the time. I could talk more about the book, but there's a general summary of the whole book. Now, where does this text that we've just read fit in? Okay? If the whole summary is that life does not have its own key, that you know, God is the one who holds the key to all things, where does this fit? This does not say to us that God unlocks all the mysteries for us. Just because God holds the key does not mean he always uses it. So the wisdom focus in this section is about living in the unknown. That's the focus here. Living in the unknown. You might have noticed as we read through uh, just these six verses that, that in this short space, the word know pops up four times. And every time the word know shows up, it's always coupled with another word, which is not. <laughs> you do not know, he says. Here's the things he says that we don't know. There's more than this, but just the things he mentions. With the first one's in verse two, with the second half of it. You don't know what disaster may happen on earth. True, right? You don't know. We don't know whether next month will bring flood or drought. When, it, when a tornado comes, it's just got that finger, right, that seems to hit one house and skip another. We, we don't know in the next six months, six years, 60 years, what rare disease we might contract or what rare disease we might already have and not know it. We don't know what wars may come or wars may go. We don't know what disaster. He goes on to say, we don't know even things about our own bodies. He says in verse 5, so there are some, some things that science can explain, but they're still mysterious. I was talking with a couple who, uh, she's pregnant and getting ready to have a baby, and I heard one of them say, you know, I have twice the number of skeletons in my body than most people. My own and the baby's. What a weird thought that is. And, and I have three times as many teeth. So I've got my teeth and baby's baby teeth and baby's adult teeth all in there. Even if we understand this based on the science, it's still uh, amazing to us. There's even more, though, that science doesn't even know. Even pretty basic things. Science doesn't know things about why we yawn, why we dream, or even where the soul comes from. That last one is the focus in verse 5. You don't know the way that the spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child. You don't know. He says in the next verse, the, the, the third thing that we don't know is we don't know success. We don't know if we'll be successful, you know? We've got seeds sown in the morning and seeds sown in the evening, and we don't know whether this one will be the crop or this one will be the crop, or both will, or I suppose neither will. You know, hard work factors into our success, but hard work never determines success. You could work and work and work and work and still not succeed. There are lots of unknowns, but the biggest and the last thing I'll mention is in the second half of verse 5. You don't know the work of God who makes everything. 
You don't know the work of God. There's just so much about God, who he is and what he does, that is and will be unknown to us. One of my favorite verses on this is in in Deuteronomy, just because it's very punchy in the way it says it. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Listen. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. Do you hear the two groups in there? There's secret things that belong to the Lord, and there's revealed things that belong to us and to our children. So there are things that God keeps secret, that he keeps unknown. There are things that God reveals, that, that he makes known to us. If there were no revealed things, if we had no revealed things at all, we would be in very bad shape. The Bible would look very different if there were no revealed things, you know? It'd be this book, and we have some, I don't know, sticky note, I guess, at the beginning that that would say, everything's a mystery. Nothing is certain at all. You don't even know who it is that wrote this note. Question mark, question mark, good luck. And then the rest of the Bible would just be, you know, I, I don't know, blank pages and scribbles and nonsense. This is God's revealed work. He's revealed other things, but he's revealed his word to us because he wants to tell us about himself and about the world he made and about how, how, he, how we fit into it. He has chosen to unlock and to use his key in some things for us. Some things are revealed, and yet there are many secrets, many unknowns that God keeps hidden. And in the words of the Bible, these unknowns are not a bad thing. The Bible often embraces, even celebrates, the mysterious things that belong to God and not to us. There's plenty of places I could go for this, but in the book of Revela- or in the book of Romans, there's a big grand statement at the end. There's a number of chapters where Paul, Paul's writing a lot about this mystery about the relationships between Jews and Gentiles. Now that Jesus has come, you know, is, is Israel, are these Jews part of the people of God or not? And why has God done all these things this way? There's this whole big kind of discussion about it where he talks about a lot of things. But then at the end, at the end of, of chapter 11, Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In other words, even in the midst of the unsearchable, inscrutable ways of God, these things still serve God and his glory, and that's a very good thing. 
So the preacher of Ecclesiastes, when it comes to these unknowns, the preacher is not lamenting the unknowns. Oh, no, if only we knew. That's not the case. Nor is he trying to fix the unknowns. Here's a little formula to figure out how to know things and to pierce into the mysterious world. He doesn't lament the unknowns. He doesn't try to fix them. The preacher just gives us wisdom about how to live in the midst of unknowns, to live with unknowns. He gives us some practical wisdom. I won't expand on this too much just because it's not the main focus, but it's worth noticing that there's some practical parts here. In the midst of unknowns, he calls us to be generous. You know, that, that first line at the beginning is, sounds a little confusing, at least to my ear. Cast your bread upon the waters. You know, that sounds odd to our modern ear, but most of the old Jewish rabbis, you know, understood that to mean give to those who are poor or needy. You know, unknowns can tempt us to want to hoard. If I don't know what's coming next week or next month, then I better, I better lock it down just in case. Yeah? And if we do that, that can breed into sins of, of greed and miserliness, self-centeredness. So the preacher here just instead says, give. Give, cast your bread upon the waters. And not just to one or two, give a portion to seven or to eight, he says. Be plentiful in your giving. That's one practical piece. The second and last practical piece is diversify. He says, you don't know what the future is going to hold, so make sure that you sow, sow your seed in the morning and in the evening. That is, it's wise not to put all of your eggs in one basket. So, so plan ahead. In case one basket of eggs drops, you still have another basket of eggs to carry with you and to make your omelet in the morning. You know, a house that's built on one leg, which I don't even know what that would be, an umbrella, a house that's built on one leg can easily fall. Boop. But a house that's built with many legs can withstand the loss of one or two. And this isn't just, you know, about crops or houses, of course. This has plenty of applications. Think about how this works in relationships. If you only have one friend, if you only have one real friend, what will you do when that person is unable to help you in your time of need? There is wisdom in having diversity because of the unknowns. There's practical wisdom here for us that we shouldn't miss, but I don't want to focus on that because overall, the main focus of the preacher is this. Here's the reason why he's telling us all these things about uh, the unknowns. The main thing he wants us to do is to carry on. carry on to just keep going. Do not let the unknowns stop you from living 
and growing, from planting and sowing. Do not get stuck in analysis paralysis because of the unknowns. That's the call at the center of the whole thing. Verse 4, he says this. I'll read it again. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. He who regards the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. What does that mean? Okay. It does not mean that every attempt to look at external circumstances and try to forecast ahead is wrong. It doesn't mean that's always wrong. I mean, Jesus commends some forms of this. You know, in the Gospels, you know, that, that modern saying, how does it go? Red sky in the morning, uh, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors take flight. He says almost, you know, it's not as rhymy as that, but it's in, in Mark. Um, think, Matthew, one of those. Jesus commends that. It's good that you notice these things. He also says, if you see a cloud rising in the west, then you know rain's coming, he says. If you get a south wind, you know scorching heat is ahead. Jesus is commending these things. So he wants us in some ways to, to look to the sky so that you know the best time to bale hay, for example. There's wisdom in these things. The author does not expect us to be entirely ignorant about the future. But he does want this, that we would not get stuck endlessly trying to look ahead with our head in the clouds. We don't want to get stuck there waiting for some sort of perfect time that never comes. You know, if we're always watching the skies, we will never put one seed in the earth. So he's calling us here to, to carry on with our doings. Quick example of this. When I was in college, you know what uh, college students talk about is dating, right? Uh, we talk about other things. We talk about important stuff, you know, the Bible and God and all of that, good things. But dating, dating, marriage, all of those things are on our minds. So, and I remember one, one young guy who it was looking for this opportunity to ask this girl on a date. And, uh, and there's just a lot of unknowns with that, right? Uh, what's going to happen with all these things? And so the unknowns were causing him to observe the wind and not sow. And I remember having a conversation with this guy and be like, what are, what are you expecting for? You know, what are you, what are you hoping will happen? You're never going to find yourself, you know, accidentally standing alone with her in a field of sunflowers where she goes, hey, what are you doing on, a, on Friday? You know, that, that, that's not going to happen. So, you know, stop staring at the clouds trying to predict the weather here. Just the next time you see her, say something, anything, say, say anything. You know, stop looking at the clouds or else the, the right time will never come. This guy happened to be stricken with a bad case of what I call what-if-itis. 
He had bad what if itis. Have you ever had this? Everything's just what if. What if she says no? You know? What if I look dumb? What if I say the wrong thing? What if she's not the one? This what-if-itis, sometimes those fears underneath the what-ifs are so deep that we don't actually think them, but we feel them. And one of the main symptoms of what-if-itis is to just watch. Watch and wait and watch and wait and watch and wait until nothing happens. And the time is gone. Before I give college students a hard time about this, not that that college situation was in any way about me, not that I would ever be scared to ask anyone out on a date. You know, it's easy to poke fun at other people, right? But this happens in a lot of circumstances, doesn't it? We, we know this. This is often the same way we approach sharing the gospel of Jesus with others. Yeah? So the gospel of Jesus is good news, great news, the best news. You know, Jesus, the very Son of God, has come to earth to save sinners like me, like you. That out of my own sin, I have set myself in rebellion against God. Not just I don't care about you, it's I am against you. Which then brings God's wrath upon me, upon all of us as humans. And yet, out of God's love, he has sent his son Jesus to be a sacrifice for us. To take on the wrath of God so that we would be forgiven and that when we come to Jesus by faith, he makes us a new creation so that we can be with God now and forever. That's really good news. That's the gospel. And if you have faith in Jesus, that's good news for you. Praise God. You'll be with him forever. That's a good thing. But there are people around you who do not know Jesus, who are dead in their spirit. These are people that you love. These are maybe even people in your own house. And you have seeds. You hold seeds that could grow a full harvest for God's kingdom. That could easily be planted in other people's hearts. Why do you not sow those seeds? There could be lots of reasons, I suppose, but part of it may be a bad case of what if itis. What if I turn this person further away from God? You know, what if I share Jesus with them and they say no? What if I look dumb? What if I say the wrong thing? What if it puts a wedge in my relationship with them? And the reality is, all of those things could happen. They could. There are lots of unknowns in these sorts of things. But I'll tell you what, it is not better to wait 
and watch and wait and watch and wait and watch until nothing happens and the time is gone. He who observes the wind will not sow. So what are you waiting for? end there, right? Let's pray. Boy, that'd be a great note. You know, uh, (laughs) it's not my intention to pile guilt on you here. Yeah? That's not my goal, nor I think is it the goal of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Although, if you feel some conviction of sin through some of these things, that's likely the Holy Spirit calling you to repent and to act so you, you would be wise to listen to those things. But I'm not trying to heap on guilt. My intention and the intention of, of the author of Ecclesiastes is that we would gain a heart of wisdom and that that wisdom would make us free. You know, to be paralyzed by unknowns That's not freedom. To stare at the clouds trying to predict the forecast of tomorrow or next week, that is not freedom. The freedom that God gives is not to give us all the answers. The freedom of God is to give us confidence in him. That is, we are assured that for everything that we don't know God knows. Everything we don't know, God knows. And more than just that he knows, he reigns over it. He rules over all things with with splendor and majesty. Our God wears light like a garment. Our God stretches out the heavens of the skies. We know these things to be true. So whenever you observe the wind, know also that the Lord rides on the wings of that wind. And whenever you regard the clouds, know also that the Lord makes those clouds his chariot. He has set the earth on its foundation so that it can never be moved. And even though much is unknown to us, knowing that all things are in our God's hands will enable us to sow, to reap, and to carry on. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, these things we know are are good for us because they come from you. Would you help us by your word now to fear and to love you more as our wise God? Would you help us to carry on today and tomorrow and next week trusting you with a living trust, knowing that all things are in your hands? You're a good God, and we do love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Ah, amen.